think most founders go global prematurely. And I'll say this, by global, I'm selling the product in multiple countries and marketing in multiple Because if you have SaaS, mm. you have pure software and it doesn't <clears> take extra effort, then I think that's fine. But I think a lot of founders think they need to expand beyond one country or beyond one city very early. Instead, they should focus on really nailing one thing at a time, which again is one of the principles, and then expanding into other regions or other products. And we made that mistake. We made the mistake of, of going to Dominican Republic, US, and Mexico at the same time with multiple products and fail and, and face you know, dire circumstances from it. I talk about how in the book. Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Shahid Durrani. Today we have with us Adricio de la Cruz. Adricio is a Y Combinator visiting partner, co-founder Arcus, sold to MasterCard. He shares lessons learned in his journey from selling guavas in Dominican Barrio to selling his startup in Silicon Valley, all to help underdog founders beat the odds welcome to our show my friend good to see you how are you my friend oh i'm doing wonderful congratulations on the book i heard you're on a tour how is that going would you like to speak about the book a little bit so i read i recently published a book called the underdog founder it shares my trajectory from the time i used to sell guayabas in the dominican barrio to the time i immigrated to the states uh, ultimately built a startup and sold it to MasterCard. And I share my journey as an underrepresented founder and juxtapose that over seven key lessons that I think anyone that wants to be an entrepreneur will find it extremely valuable. These key lessons are hands on from your experience in your journey. That's correct. Those are seven key lessons that I wish I had when I was younger. Wow. And I think yeah. anybody that will read the story coupled with the takeaways can readily apply those in their everyday life. You've spoken before about the impact of your upbringing on your entrepreneurial journey. Can you share a specific instant that you believe that planted a seed for a particular innovative idea that you took advantage of later on in your life? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about my background. So I grew up in Santo Domingo sure. with my mom and my aunt. I grew up in a neighborhood that didn't have much rainwater or, or electricity. So I used to sell guayabas in the front of my house. I used to sell that to buy candles at night so I could study. At age 11, I immigrated to Harlem. I started with my father. Very quickly, this was early 90s, pre-Giuliani. So New York was not in its best state. So I was exposed to gang culture, was assaulted multiple times by multiple gangs, witnessed everything from sexual assault to physical assault to police brutality, lost my best friend to a gang, uh, to a gang affiliation. And all, and all this by the time I was 17, by the way. I saw a lot more than the average 17-year-old. Uh, and what that internalized in me was a sense of deep desire to escape my circumstances rather than focusing on being a victim 
or focusing on feeling sad about myself. I just channel all of that energy to figure out how to succeed, how to achieve massive success such that myself, my family, my community, other people that look like me can also achieve success. So just using that fuel, I talk about that in chapters, actually the first principle is finding your fuel. That was my fuel. Tapping into my upbringing, tapping into those massive challenges and weaponizing those challenges and turning them into fuel. That's definitely a, a very traumatic story going through all that at such a young age. And it's unfortunate. There's a lot of people going through that. And for most, they take that energy and they turn it in a bad direction or a negative direction, but you turn it in a direction where you knew that if I focus my energy and specifically towards success, at least I have a chance to get there. So you pushed your way through in that direction and it got you here. And you keep growing, not stopping with sale of that startup to MasterCard. That was just the beginning. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So any specific innovation that came from that experience? Anything that you injected into your business? Yeah. The, my, my business, Arcus, was initially called Regali. Regali had the mission of changing remittances. Now... Remittances is the act of sending money between different countries, typically between a developed country and a developed country. A very popular uh, behavior for immigrants like myself. So <clears throat> the way that idea came about is because I grew up receiving remittances from my dad when I lived in the DR. And, I, and then afterwards, when I was working in the U.S., I used to send remittances to my abuela back in Santo Domingo. So in the 20 years I had immigrated uh, and ultimately finished business school outside of the business, remittances had really improved. So I decided to create a remittance product. And what I've learned quickly, and I talk about this in the book, is the best way to start any, any startup or any business is really targeting something that you have a very unique set of expertise on because that's going to give you an advantage over 99% of people. And the second thing I learned is that it doesn't matter if you change. <clears throat> Most startups pivot out of their initial idea. What matters is that you get started. <clears throat> Once you get started, you'll capture a lot of lessons and you'll have the momentum necessary to move forward to the next thing. But the whole, the most important thing here is just getting started, putting one foot in front of the other and building up that momentum, building up that confidence even if you, com you change completely out of your initial idea. Because it's the journey at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a journey. And it's, I think people need to look at startups specifically as more of a scientific experiment rather than a, a business. Because when you run a business, you're attached to results like revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Startups are inherently innovative. That means it's never been done before. So at the beginning, you're really trying to figure out who wants this and in what flavor. Right. How, what product do they want and who wants it? And that takes time to experiment, put the product out there, talk to people, see how the product behaves out of the well, how people interact with the product. And you keep molding and shaping and tweaking the product until it gets to a point where of maturity. But that can take months or it can take years. That's why I always say look at your startup, not uh, as a business, but as an experiment. You know, you're a scientist, so to speak. 
Mm. You are simply observing how people are behaving with your product. And if you take that mm -hmm. approach, you're going to be much more successful. Drisio, when you were experimenting and when you were making those shifts, what was your mindset like? How did you feel within taking those steps? Because sometimes in entrepreneurship, we were afraid of the unknown, what we're doing, what steps we're taking, where is it taking us? Is it taking us in the right direction or not? So how did you deal with that? And what kind of advice can you provide someone in the audience that they could do to quiet that noise? Yeah, in chapter four of the book, I, I talk about uh, the importance of being pivot ready. And one thing that I didn't do, it's being pivot ready. I basically, we had raised $3 million of capital from a lot of uh, high profile investors, Anderson Horowitz, Gary Tan, Cameron Winkleboss, Y Combinator. And I felt like I had a lot of confidence, but I felt a, a sense of hopeless. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, I, and I let that ego carry me and build a product that nobody wanted. So it's important to be mm. ready. It's important to, to treat your Good business point. like an experiment at the beginning. In my case, I went up spending one half million dollars on a product that nobody wanted. And I talk about how in the book, the way we pivoted, the reason why we pivoted is not because I decided to pivot. It's because my team held an intervention for me. Because I was driving the ship down the wrong direction. It was only because of that intervention that we had that we decided to pivot and ultimately had to lay off half of the team, unfortunately. But that's when ultimately we pivoted away from Regali and to Arcus. But that pivot was extremely successful, right? Yeah, but it took a while to really come into fruition. It's not binary, it's not black or white, it's not a straight line. It's a zigzag line that sometimes you go up and backwards. You, sometimes you take one step forward and two steps back. And that's part of the process. It's, it's not like you say, we do X then Y. It, it took a long mm. time to really brew the solution. That's why I think in the book, I talk about all, all those ups and downs that we had, all the mistakes I made sometimes twice, but I think it's, the reason I wrote the book is so people can under can get a better glimpse into what it looks like in refined detail. Because a lot of the startup books you read about are these gleaming successes. And what I've learned from having talked to and worked with over two thousand startups at this point in my life is that most cases are not like that. Most cases are very dirty and very ugly. <laughs> and those are the success cases. <laughs> yeah. So it's general so, uh, though, like entrepreneurship, right? That's pretty, pretty yeah. common. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. but I wanted to give people an insider perspective of what it looks like. Good. So it's full of the nitty gritty details. Yeah. I, I think that's what matters. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. Th those kind of war stories is what motivate people and give people a lot of insights. I always mm -hmm. say, you know, I say this in the book is that. A success is great for inspiration, but failure is best for education. Yeah. So you also share particularly how to approach solutions when you need them. For example, finding the right investors and finding seed money, etc. Do you give specific guidance on that side as well in the book? Yeah. Yes. In, in chapter seven, I talk about how we had 
made every single mistake in terms of fundraising. And in chapter seven, I corrected course and started treating fundraising more like a process as opposed to treating it ad hoc, like saying, hey, we'll see whatever works. So I talk about how to do a, a proper fundraising process, uh, how, how to rank investors, how to find investors, how to get in front of investors, and how to do it in, in the most constrained time period possible. So I go into a fair amount of detail on how to do that. But even leading up to that, I talk about all the things that I did that were wrong, so you shouldn't do, which is what most founders do, which is they just say, hey, I'm raising money. Here's my deck. Fund me now. I was just totally the wrong approach to do it. And those tend not to work out as, as well either. Yeah, exactly. Because I think if you look at fundraising itself, it, it's like an investor has, has endless optionality, right? They have multiple places they could put their money in. They could put their money into existing investments. They could put money into new investments. And they're getting humbled with different opportunities every single day. The, mm. the question is, why are they going to invest in you over those other thousand opportunities? And why now, right? It needs to be, you need to grab their attention by the throat and not let go. Yeah. A lot of founders don't think about it like that. The worst founders think about it like a utility. Like, I'm here raising money. Please give me money. Like, investors are not banks, right? They're not a public yeah. utility either. Where you press a button and cash comes out. It's yeah. very much a meritocracy. It is very much relative to everybody else. How are you in the top 1%? And I go into, I go in depth in talking in the book, talking about that specifically about the psychological aspect of fundraising, the personal aspect and how to present yourself as a formidable founder, as a founder that can break Good. through walls and attract mm -hmm. resources. I talk about the, the tactical aspect as well, about you know, creating a well-oiled fundraising process, whether you are a two-person company or a 200-person company. So I talk about all those aspects that I, I, I researched a lot when I was a founder and just didn't get really good answers. And that's why I put it all in writing so people can, can get value out of it. Good. Excellent. So you have navigated many different cultures and systems in the past, can you share the most overlooked lesson in going global for a company that most founders don't realize until later on that you could share? I think it's overrated. <laughs> I think if you look at most companies that succeeded, mm -hmm. they typically dominate one country and one product. Because Stripe, it's mostly payment processing in the U.S. That's something uh, to this end, they're like a $50 billion business. Same thing with DoorDash. Even companies like Rappi, uh, most of their business is like food delivery, but they have 10 other products in 10 other countries. So I think most founders go global prematurely. And, and I'll say this, by global, selling the product in multiple countries and marketing in multiple countries. Because if you have SaaS, mm. if you have pure software, and it doesn't take extra effort, then I think that's fine. But I think a lot of founders think they need to expand beyond one country or beyond one city very early. Instead, they should focus on really nailing one thing at a time, which again is one of the principles 
and then expanding into other regions or other products. Uh, and we made that mistake. We made the mistake of, of going to Dominican Republic, US, and Mexico at the same time with multiple products and fail and, and face you know, dire circumstances from it. I talk about how in the book, I, because we're B2C, we're doing a consumer product and a regulated product. We actually got yet, we got some attention, unwanted attention from the feds and, and some regulators that almost had to be in jail just because I was doing two things at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. That was a little mishap there. It could have gotten yeah. ugly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was quite nightmarish. But, uh, but yeah, I think the lesson learned there was like one thing at a time, focus on one product, one region at a time. And once you know mm. that, then you can move on and scale to other things. Yeah, we get eager. We feel so good about our product. We just want to go everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. this is figuring yes. out. At the end of the day, like most of your revenue will come from the eighty twenty rule. Always applies. Like a bulk of your revenue will come from like one product, one region. So, for sustainability was becoming the talk of the town when it comes to companies and basically a non-negotiable as we progress further in coming years. How would you look at the profitability and also remaining socially responsible? Are there any tips on that angle? It depends, right? If you're a Fortune 500 company, obviously that's a different set of circumstances. You have different set of stakeholders. Probably can't speak to that much. For a startup founder, you're just trying to survive, right? 99.9% .9 of founders are not profitable. And, and you don't know if you're going to be around the next year, the next, hell, you don't know if you're going to be around the next month. So being ESG focused is a luxury that most founders don't have. I think the mistake that some impact founders make is to try to do both of them at the same time. Again, I uh, didn't mm. focus on nailing one thing at a time. They try to be uh, commercially successful and impactful at the same time. And it's very hard to do when that's not organically baked into their model. So if, if your model is to you know, develop better solar panels, great. It is organically baked into your business that you're going to do it good by doing well. But if you're selling shoes and you're going to try to create a social impact campaign, say, buy a pair of shoes and donate another, and we'll donate another one to Poor mm. Village in Swayze Country, which has been done successfully before. Yes. Uh, yes. It's very hard to execute and do both at the same time because it's not only it, it's up into your margins, but it's also, it changes your entire positioning away from buy me because I'm a high quality product versus buy me because I'm going to make you feel good. So which is, which is how you, and you know, your startup. Two, two, two things. Exactly. They're different. Like why are people buying, mm. right? Why are people buying your product? Is it because you're going to make them feel good about something good for others or is it because you have a high quality product? How are you positioning mm. yourself in the market? Then that impacts everything else. That impacts who you hire. That impacts where you market, how you market, how you price your product, it impacts everything. And it, it clouds mm. your judgment at the beginning. And I'm speaking from experience because at the beginning, the, our company was very socially aware, was very socially focused. 
It was about the marketizing remittances and making it free for everybody. And that clouded my judgment a lot. And I almost forgot like I was running a for-profit commercially viable business. And I didn't focus that much on product market data at the beginning and wound up spending up $1.5 million on a product that just didn't work. Yeah, these are lessons. And that's why this book is so important for especially someone that's launching a startup or thinking about launching a startup. This type of knowledge could really steer them in the right direction, I feel. Yeah, I think I want to give people like the, the inside scoop, the behind the current insider perspective on of the ebbs and flows of starting a business. That's, that's not typically available. Like when you read a TechCrunch article or a LinkedIn mm. article, you don't, you're not going to read any of that. All you're going to do read is the success, which is the, the tip of the iceberg, mm. not the 99% that's underneath the iceberg. Yeah. You're sharing it all. That's wonderful. Can you share what you feel your innermost superpower is that got you to this point in life? Yeah, I, I think my innermost superpower is just, I've always been extraordinarily self-aware of where I want to be, where I stand and where I came from. I have a 360 perspective of everything that's going on around me, especially because I came from where I came from. I knew that there was a lot more in front of me, but I also knew where I stood. So I used that not as a reason to feel bad about myself, but as a reason to say, hey, this is where I am. These are the challenges. What do I need to do good to get to the next level? And a lot of times founders get caught up and feel bad about themselves and feel like a victim. And you that and I'll say this, like pity is a city you can visit, but you can't live there. You can visit it, feel bad, but move on. Like afterwards, move on. Move on. Start, move, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I know times are tough for fundraising, but it's cyclical. It'll get better. And this is mm -hmm. a test. And if you're a real father, yeah. you will overcome this test and get to the next level. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on our show, sharing the, the information you shared today. I'm sure it's going to help people. And definitely your book is something that intrigues me, especially if I'm looking to launch a startup, I want all the guidance. And you can go to all the podcasts, you can read all the articles, you can read information online. But if someone put the effort in to organize in a way that gives you the, the nitty gritty and the information that can actually help you make the right decisions, I think that's gold. So I appreciate you putting the effort and time into creating something like that and making it available for entrepreneurs. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aid. Appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure.